If you want to spend less time going to the grocery store, then you need to check out ButcherBox. It's a super convenient way to find high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust. ButcherBox only sells 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork-raised, crate-free, and wild-caught seafood. And you know what all that means. No antibiotics or added hormones, so you get peace of mind that you're eating healthy food. On top of all that, ButcherBox makes shopping simpler because it gets delivered right to your doorstep. Shipping is always free, and you can customize your meal plan so you're only getting exactly what you want. We've tried everything from pork chops to tenderloins at our house, and they're always a huge hit. ButcherBox prices are as good or better than what you can find at the store, plus they have exclusive member deals, as well as a ton of recipes, cooking tips, and other kitchen hacks to choose from. So sign up at ButcherBox.com LISC and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer, plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. So sign up today at ButcherBox.com slash LISK, L-I-S-K, and use code LISK to choose your free-for-a-year offer, plus $20 off your first order. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Mopac Audio. A note to listeners, the following podcast contains content that may not be suitable for all audiences. Welcome back to another episode of LISC, Long Island Serial Killer. We wanted to take a minute to recognize that, especially in these trying times, we appreciate you listening to and sharing these episodes with your friends and fellow true crime fans. We're excited to bring you another great season soon with new voices and insights. With your support, we can do all this more thoroughly, and most importantly, you help keep attention focused on this string of unsolved murders. For this episode, we're excited to bring you an exclusive follow-up conversation we had with Robert Kolker, the author of Lost Girls. He shared new information gleaned from his years of investigative reporting on LISC, and he also talked about his unique perspective on the feature film adaptation of his book. Again, thank you. And here's the episode. My name's Robert Kolker, and I'm the author of Lost Girls, the book about the Long Island serial case that came out in the summer of 2013. I'm a nonfiction author and magazine journalist. My new book, Hidden Valley Road, is out this month in April. And I spent many years as a writer for New York Magazine, which is where I wrote the cover story about the Long Island serial killer case that eventually was expanded into Lost Girls. So... Why did you want to write Lost Girls beyond that it's a crazy story, of course? When I was working on the story for New York Magazine that eventually was expanded into Lost Girls, I was really starting to specialize in writing true crime stories that had some sort of social issue or or larger question hanging in the background. I just needed an original angle and really wanted to make sure that New York Magazine was responsibly covering this huge story right in our backyard. But once I looked at the story when it was published, I saw that it too was getting at something that wasn't just a Hannibal Lecter story. It wasn't just a serial killer story. It was a story about an entire class of people that 
most Americans may overlook. And it's about the new variety of prostitution that was happening, not on the streets, but in people's homes and facilitated through computers and cell phones. And it, it was about people getting into that career as a means of social mobility, as a way to sort of not have to work at the Walmart anymore. And remember, this was 2011, and the crash had just been three years ago, and there were parts of America that clearly were not recovering the way that other parts of America were. And I felt this is a whole little slice of our society that a book could really shine a light on. And of course, I wanted there to be a resolution to the case. The first four women were found on the beach in December of 2010, and the New York Magazine story was in May of 2011, and I started working on the book in August of 2011, and it came out two years later in 2013. And in the time that I was reporting the book, Shannon's remains were found, which became sort of the way to end the book, to bring the curtain down on that chapter of the story of the family. The book was really well done, and it I think it really inspired us to take it beyond just that serial killer angle and really try to spend time and how to work in those families and their stories and not just make them faceless victims. Speaking of what's raising new insight, let's talk about the film then. Are you happy with the reception from everything I've seen and heard? It's really well done. How do the families, I know you guys had a special screening for them, but if you just want to talk about that some. Sure. The idea for a movie came from a bunch of folks working with Langley Park, which is a production company headed by Kevin McCormick, who's now an executive at Warner Brothers, and working alongside a screenwriter named Michael Werwee, who also wrote the recent Ted Bundy movie with Zac Efron. They came up with a, a direction that I never really would have thought of in a million years because I was so focused on the book as an ensemble piece. They thought about centering it around Mary Gilbert and talking about her transition from a very troubled and imperfect parent to a crusader for justice who really confronts her life and the lives of her children. I say that I never would have considered it because I really had no way of conceiving my book as a movie and I really hadn't begun to even think about it. But I thought it was a great idea and I still do. Mary was a very confrontational person, a very difficult person, but she also did more than anyone else to raise visibility for this case and so making her a movie protagonist really makes a lot of sense. This was a few years before she she died, remember, and so she actually met with Liz Garbus, the director. Liz was the perfect choice for this. She has this amazing career in documentaries that are really socially conscious and are very much based on reporting. When we first met, of course, we learned we knew a million of the same people. And and the, the kind of work I've done in magazines for 20 years is really, there's a lot of overlap between the sort of stuff I do and the sort of things that she had focused on. So it felt like a wonderful match. And um, to me, the interesting part of the timing of it is that all of this came together and the script was completed long before true crime movies, socially conscious true crime movies and miniseries were a thing. Lost Girls was published in the summer of 2013 and Making a Murderer burst on the scene in Christmas of 2014, so like 18 months later. And that really was like the model for the thing, the thing that you binge at home, whether it's a documentary or whether it's a docudrama. So 
I think there's an alternate reality where Lost Girls could be like a 10-episode thing that gets into every nook and cranny of the book. But I am over the moon about the movie. I really think it captures the tone and the themes of the book, the messages of the book. The acting is wonderful. The look of it, the first time I saw it, I thought to myself, wow, that's exactly how it felt being out there in these quiet outer reaches of Long Island where the fog never seems to go away, where it's always sort of misty, where you never really know what's 10 feet away from you, even during the daytime sometimes. It really captured the essence of the book. It is a dramatization, and a lot of scenes are fictionalized, but the drama serves to underscore the themes and the issues of the story, and so I'm really impressed with what they did. Yeah, absolutely. What about the screening you had for the families and how that reception went? I was thrilled that Netflix and Liz Garbus and Archer Gray, which is the production company that ended up completing production of the film, went to such great lengths to reach out to not just Cherie, but also family members of the other victims who figure prominently in Lost Girls, the book, and have small parts in Lost Girls, the movie. They brought them to New York for a special screening and had long discussions with them before and afterward. And it was an emotional time. There were tears. There was some laughter when people would do things on screen that were very much true to what the actual real-life people would do. And uh, at the end, everyone seemed to agree that the message of the movie was the message it should be, which is that these women shouldn't be taken for granted, that they were overlooked, that they, there was a travesty of justice here, and that the case is still open. I would say it was a really hopeful gathering because everybody sort of walked away feeling that the movie could really help bring attention to the case. With Suffolk County and kind of the changing of the guard... We know there has been some new movement, like the January press conference, but what are you hearing about SCPD, and are you hopeful? I haven't heard much directly about SCPD, but I'll answer the other part of the question. Sure. I do have a little hope that with each new administration, there's um, a new motivation to take new and fresh looks at this case. I think there's enough of a track record of cases like these being solved 10 years, 15 years later, even 20 years later, that someone who inherits this department, who isn't saddled with the legacy of corruption, who isn't sitting there trying to live down something that they were never really involved in, that they can come into it with a little less ego and really start to try to fire things up again. That's why I had hope when I heard that the FBI was finally involved. That was with the previous commissioner, I think. And with this new commissioner, I know she had the press conference, and I guess we can all speculate about the timing of it. Were they just trying to look busy or not? But I would say that at the end of the day, it doesn't necessarily matter what the motivation is. If they are deciding to communicate with the public about this case, that keeps the case alive. And so that alone is good. And so much the better if they really are genuinely trying out new strategies to solve the case. Yeah. Given the years that have gone by and... and um being that I'm sure in some sense you're the Lost Girls Lisk Clearinghouse, have you come across any new leads or theories or just tidbits? You know, because I get it some too, where people will reach out and, you know, bring stuff up. And of course, without mentioning names, we don't want to slander anyone either. But anything odd or just any new bits of information that you've come across in the years? Um, Most of the emails I get, are from people who have theories and suspicions, sometimes about someone they dated a few years ago or, or someone they knew. 
or other times they are completely sure, but then you dig a little deeper and it's clear that whatever they have doesn't really line up with the set of facts of the case. And of course, my response, first and foremost to everyone, is you've got to contact the police with all this stuff. I would never respond to somebody, sounds like a stupid idea. I would say, please talk to the police, because for all I know, it isn't a stupid idea. I can't say I've had a significant tip recently. There were a few years there, of course, after the Burke fallout, where there was lots of talk about a possible connection between Burke and, and some people in Oak Beach, about parties in Oak Beach. All again, you know, I believe there's a huge echo chamber there where people start to believe that something that is someone else said has to be true because they heard it somewhere else, but it really is all coming from the same rumor. Nothing's necessarily verified. Obviously, you know, the first two episodes we've talked about Shannon and how her case kind of led to everything. We just thought it would be good, if you want, to give us just a brief summary on what do you think happened that night? What is your view on it and your best guess? So I guess at the end of the day, there are two possibilities. The first possibility is that Shannon was hysterical and ran three quarters of a mile through a very, very difficult to navigate marsh before finally dying um, or finally collapsing and then dying. That's one possibility. And the other is that somebody or some group of people disposed of her body in the marsh and I think that either possibility, to me, has to have something to do with what the neighbors of Oak Beach saw that night that they aren't talking about. I feel strongly that there are not just one, but two or three or perhaps even four neighbors of Oak Beach that know more about what happened to Shannon and just haven't said anything publicly. I think that she was last seen outside Barbara Brennan's house, which is really just outside of Hackett's house. But Hackett was the, you know, as I say in your podcast, he really was the Johnny on the spot of the neighborhood, the one people depended on in moments like these. And that it defies credulity to think that he wouldn't be involved that morning. I also think that when the cop came closer to 5 a.m. to go look around and she was nowhere to be found, there again, there are two possibilities there. One is that somebody had already sped out onto the highway and thrown her into one side of the marsh, or the other is that she had run all by herself into the marsh and nobody knew that. But then there's a third possibility, which is that she really was sitting uh, being treated by the doctor, and that maybe after that she went off. Or maybe she died. Maybe then they turned to pack and said, you better dispose of the body. Or maybe he did that before the police came because he wasn't there when the police came. I, I tend to go around in circles on this. But the thing I keep coming back to is that there's no way that a few neighbors, starting with Hackett, don't know more about what happened that morning. I will say this. I mean, she was found at the far end of the marsh, which is right close to the shoulder of Ocean Parkway. So who's to say that somebody didn't toss her in a car drive out, turn right on Ocean Parkway, drive a quarter of a mile, pull over, throw her in the marsh, and then go home. I mean, it, it seems like that would be much more plausible than her making her way by herself a quarter of a mile through such a thick and insanely brambled marsh. I don't know if that person would be Michael Pack or Hackett or some other neighbor, but I do know that once the cops came, there was nothing to see there. So 
the situation cleaned up rather quickly. Yeah, you know, I've been to the spot where Shannon was discovered. It is just one of those, you know, like you would just kind of jump in past the brush line and then put her off to the side if that's what happened. And I think what's hard for people to understand is like she can still be removed from the other bodies and from the serial killer at large, and there could still be foul play. There's just so many angles to it that you have to kind of start separating them out a little bit. You know, that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. (coughs) Shopify is your POS command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that unites your in-person and online sales into one seamless process. Easily track every sale across your business and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify helps you drive traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. You can take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify POS Go mobile device. Easy peasy. And if there's ever a question, Shopify's award-winning support is there to answer your questions. So sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lisk, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lisk to take your retail business to the next level today. One last time, go to shopify.com slash L-I-S-K. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. One thing that I would like to acknowledge in the podcast is Mary's death. Would you talk a little bit about kind of what happened there? Yes. I wrote an afterword for the book that came out in a new edition of the book a month or two ago. That would help people understand Mary a little bit better, too, since I knew the movie was going to center around Mary. And I hadn't had a chance to really write about her death. Mary died in 2016. It seems that from my reporting after that, I learned that she really had spent the last several years of her life focused on two things. The first was continuing to fight on Shannon's behalf to try to get an alternative autopsy, to try to get the 911 tape released, to try to litigate against Dr. Hackett to get people deposed in Oak Beach to try to learn more about what they knew. That, the, that was one set of things she was doing. But the other thing she was doing was really stepping up and trying to help her other daughter, Sarah, who was suffering from schizophrenia and was losing custody of her son. She she took care of, of her grandson. She stepped in and took care of Sarah when need be. She really was as attentive and responsible as she possibly could be. And for people I talked to who knew Mary, not just people who liked her, but people who never particularly liked her, they were very impressed by her and thought that she really stepped up in a way as a parent that was not easy for her to do in the past. And it makes it all the more tragic what happened in the summer of 2016. Sarah was off her meds and psychotic and she called her mother and her mother came to the house and she brutally murdered her mother. Mary Gilbert died 
in July of 2016 at the hands of her own daughter. And Sarah is now serving a 25-year prison sentence in a state prison. Her death was another horrible tragedy for Cherie and for Stevie, the, the two remaining daughters in the family. Their lives are going to be forever marked by so many different tragedies, it's hard to fathom. I saw Cherie recently at a couple of the screenings of the Lost Girls movie, and I couldn't be more impressed by how she's holding up. She really is a, an amazing example of a strong character and strong will. She's a very busy person. She has a college education to complete, a full-time job, and several kids, and a relationship that she's maintaining all at once. And, and to see her do that in the shadow of all the tragedy that's happened to her is just incredibly inspiring. And what I found in watching the Lost Girls movie was really interesting to me because it's a Hollywood movie. It's focused on the redemption story of Mary Gilbert. But in this case, it really is a true story. Mary really did redeem herself in her final years in many ways. One thing, when we did this, we weren't able to talk to Kim or Missy. And those are the two family members that we wish we could have included. But back in 2017, 2018, when we were filming, Kim was kind of off the radar again and struggling. And Missy was kind of, as you've probably realized, they'll go through these cycles where they're like, I don't want to talk. I'm done for a while. And I get that, of course. But maybe you could just tell us a little bit about Kim and then just a little bit about Missy, just so we can just include them as far as making sure their voices are somewhat heard as best we can. Well, the women who came together, the, the sisters and the mothers of the, of the victims in this case, Kim was really the one who understood the life of an escort the most. She really had the most inside knowledge, and that's because that's her career as well. She drops in and out of sight and on and off the grid as the years go by, but she's still around and active. Sometimes she works as an escort, sometimes she's in recovery. It's, it's a difficult path she's chosen. But when you talk to her, she has you know, really no illusions. She's very clear-eyed about exactly what that career is like and the risks that were taken. And she feels a tremendous amount of guilt for including her sister Amber in that life, but she also understands how it got that way and, and, and the direction that their lives took. And most of all, she understands, you know, what it would take for someone like Amber to leave her phone at home and leave her home and go see a stranger and spend the night and run that sort of risk. She gets it intuitively in a way that perhaps most of your listeners and most of the readers of Lost Girls and most of the people watching the Lost Girls movie might not really understand. So I found talking to Kim about a lot of this stuff to be a real breath of fresh air because, you know, here was someone who really lived it and who really understands it. Maureen's sister, Missy, could be one of the most knowledgeable people about this case. She really has been working the, the Internet and speaking with law enforcement and with countless others about this case ever since her sister disappeared in 2007. And that's years before this case was a serial killer case. She's an incredibly impressive woman and really, really devoted to not just trying to get justice for her sister, but to help people understand that her sister was far more than the way much of the media had painted her. It's all the more impressive because Missy had 
more than one tragedy in her life. She didn't just lose her sister, Maureen, in this serial killer case. She also lost her brother, Will, in a motorcycle accident a year or two after Maureen was killed. And so they were three kids, and now it's just one kid sitting and trying to do her best and do right by everyone. She also has a large family of her own. She's happily married and, and working hard to support that family, but at the same time, carry the flag for her sister and her sister's case. Going back to kind of how you wrote this book and why you wrote this book and the attitudes towards these women and this new economy that was happening, what are your thoughts on kind of where it's at now and how things are changing and Backpage and Craigslist going away and some of those maneuvers they're making and how would the investigation go down today if you had to guess? Well, Craigslist and Backpage are gone, but escort work that's facilitated online will probably be with us forever. And so there's a way to to conduct business that way online still, and there probably always will be. The bigger issue is that fewer people assume that they have privacy online the way that they did back in 2010 and 2011. Everybody assumes that if they're on their computer that they might have a digital trail. So it might not necessarily be the perfect marketplace that it seemed to be 10 years ago. It still is an attractive way for for someone to make a lot of money really fast without having to be under the control of a pimp or to have to live on the street. And so it'll always be there. In terms of the case, I think I think Shannon Gilbert's done a lot to raise awareness for women like this. I see it in media coverage all the time, even in like very basic newspaper stories about a suspected multiple murderer and escort. I see that they devote a paragraph or two to the personal history of the victim that's beyond what they did for a living when they were killed. The, the people are looked at as human beings now, and I think that she has a lot to do with that. I mean, that there really have never been a murder victim who put a face on this population. I would say going back to Jack the Ripper, there really hasn't been an escort victim of a serial killer who's been as effective at raising awareness for the vulnerability of escorts as Shannon. And the irony there is, of course, that Shannon might not even be a victim of the serial killer. But it's still an amazing thing that her death has accomplished. And I think this podcast is doing a really good job. Um, You've had a lot of time to work on it. And this is the sort of subject where you really have to bite off tiny pieces of every single possible angle. You can't walk around thinking that you're going to necessarily find some huge smoking gun somewhere. You've got to move the ball forward on 20 different fronts at once. You've got to see if you can find out a little bit more about the Suffolk County Police Department and a little bit more about Melissa Bartholomew's boyfriend and a little bit more about the calls made to Melissa's sister. Any little bit of the apple that you can get at helps move things forward because the case is still alive. And I think it's a tremendous challenge for anyone to work on it. And this particular podcast has been very ambitious in trying to not just raise visibility, but get some new insight. Well, thank you. And um, I'm glad we're doing something with it. And I hope we do more because any little thing helps, you know, as you know, that any light, any attention can sometimes do big things. I'm glad that you, that this is coming together as it is. I've been enjoying the show. It's always a pleasant surprise to hear voices that I hadn't heard in a while, like Kritzia. I thought, oh, how great that you've got all these people. And so I was really impressed and pleased. And um, yeah, good luck to everybody. All right. Thanks, Bob. We'll talk to you later. Thanks. 
We'd like to thank Robert Kolker for all his work on the case and for all the time he spent with us. And we're grateful for you, the listener, for joining us on this special episode. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.